0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Cloud Wars Live. The digital revolution is in full swing here in early 2020, and we've got one of our digital all-stars on deck here today. Our guest is Tony Uphoff. Tony, thanks so much for being with
1: us. Hey, Bob, great to see you, and uh, great to be on the show as usual.
0: Thanks. So uh, for everybody, you know, Tony is the CEO of Thomas, which is the parent company of ThomasNet, a very interesting data-centric platform connecting buyers and sellers in industrial and manufacturing markets. Tony's got his own podcast and has been involved with a fascinating digital transformation of his own at Thomas, a 110, 115-year-old family-owned company that's recently moved full swing into the digital and data worlds. So, Tony, as you pull together those different threads, both from your own experiences within Thomas... And I think, you know, as important or more important outwardly with all those customers, uh, suppliers, buyers, producers, sellers, stakeholders, distributors, you're sitting at a nexus point where you get a lot of insights into what's going on. And I thought that one of the things you wanted to talk about today here early in 2020, kicking off this notion of uh, we've heard about Industry 4.0 for a while, but you think there are some things coming together that say, this is it. it, it's time.
1: Yeah. You know, we always joke, Bob, about the idea that we talk about this stuff and it's going to be the year of and then, uh, oh, you know, five years. Well, OK, now this is the year. And, and a lot of that really has to do with it's easier to see the big picture of a, of a you know massive market transition. What's far harder, as you well know, being an historian of this is to understand when the enabling infrastructure or the enabling applications will come together in a way to bring it in relative orbit. We believe 2020 will be the year that Industry 4.0 really takes off. And, and let me kind of unpack that with you a little bit and give you a sense of perspective. We've been seeing for about the last 18 months, but accelerating over the last six months, an increase in demand for Products and services that you and I would think of as advanced uh, manufacturing products and services, robotics, a- advanced manufacturing systems, um, additive manufacturing, also known as three D, uh, you know, uh, printing, um, uh, you know, things around electronic components of sensors and things that are clearly going to be baked in, if not designed into a larger system and then converged with a, with a, uh, a traditional in industrial product or service. Now, when you look at that, we think that the reason that's accelerating is with this idea that finally the enabling infrastructure, which is two additional components, the industrial internet of things, right, we're now wired enough as a manufacturing economy or industrial economy, but we think the last kind of missing piece it's starting to come together as universal 5G. And that is, you know, in its own way, Bob, I'd compare it back to, um, if, if you think back to the 2004, 2005 timeframe. Blockbuster was a big business. DVD sales of movies hit $22 million uh, a year, $22 billion, pardon me, $22 billion a year. It was twice the size of box office at the time. Um, And streaming was an idea and a concept, but literally people would kind of snicker if you brought it up. Well, it wasn't that streaming wasn't understood. It's just that the enabling infrastructure to enable streaming obviously wasn't, guess what, you look at today. DVD sales are probably next to nothing. I haven't even looked at them. Blockbusters has one store left. And streaming, everybody is diving into streaming. I kind of think that that's the piece here in, in, um in this march towards the next industrial revolution that that's going to really let go and as you well know 5g just opens up packets of information at volumes that we 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 haven't even dreamed of before
0: tony you had an interesting thread that you you set off on linkedin a week or two ago about what are some industries that are going to really feel the impact of 5g what did you hear back from people on that
1: yeah it was amazing so in no rank order um, and I learned a ton. You were nice enough to, to bring your network into the discussion. I had people send me proprietary research and all kinds of stuff. I mean, it was really, really great. Um, healthcare. So, healthcare was probably the one that I think I understood. It, it's tangential to the industries that we serve here. And where we would serve the healthcare industry is really, uh, you know, most every major medical device company uses Thomas and our thomasnet.com platform to source components or, you know, manufacturers or, or, you know, uh, pieces of what they're building out there. But in, in that respect, that's how we might connect to the healthcare industry. But to hear about some of the applications and, you know, one is the amassing of volumes of data to understand pathology at a level that we've just not been able to do before, you know, as opposed to, Gosh, I think I've seen a case like this before turning into understanding millions of cases in, in almost instantaneous, you know, uh, time frames is a huge game changer. Many people believe also in healthcare, it's going to open up the idea to imagine what you and I are doing right now, but to a medical end. You know, that you could be a specialist and I could bring you into something as sensitive as a surgery and have you participate along with me to save someone's life or to alter the course of their health or whatever it might be so the healthcare stuff was just mind blowing to me that that you know uh, that, that I thought was really cool the other oh, i'm sorry please. go ahead no 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 Talk. The, the other one that hit me after healthcare was all of the related things to either smart cities or the idea of I'll call it both bob electric vehicles, but also autonomous vehicles. And and I thought that was fascinating. And I know you have some, some information on that stuff as well.
0: Tony, tell me, uh, what are your thoughts here, right? So 5G, as you say, you know, all the indications are it's really ready to come to fruition along with the underlying infrastructure. You've talked on some episodes before about how some of these new digital models allow manufacturing almost like the barrier to entry for manufacturing to be lowered a little. The capabilities are are much higher. It's not going to be less competitive. It's just you don't have some of those traditional giant physical challenges to it. If 5G takes off in the way that you're describing here, do you think we'll see some companies that had sort of been into manufacturing, got out of it and are back into it, Will we see some of those changes?
1: I believe that we will, Bob. And I think I would argue that what we're going to start to see, along with this, this kind of, and perhaps a little buzzy to call it the next industrial revolution, but so be it. Let's let's use that as a platform to to discuss this. I think you're going to see a a reimagining, if not a redefinition, of what is a manufacturer. And what is manufacturing? So, to unpack your point a little bit, I I think within context of not just 5G, but many of these enabling technologies you and I have been describing, first off, you go back to cloud, right, which which is foundational to Industry 4.0 and the digital transformation that's happening here. Simple example. Through the magic of services, like all the great companies that you, that you uh, talk about, you know, from Google to Amazon to, um, to Microsoft, what's starting to happen is basically artificial intelligence as a service. So, whereas a smaller company, I would be boxed out of that, Bob. There's no way I could have competed at that level. Well, as a good example, we're a, a fairly good-sized AWS customer we're actually starting to use artificial intelligence as a service. That had we needed to invest on that on our own, Bob, that, that's, the, that's the bastion of Facebook and Google and, you know, platforms that are much larger businesses than thomasnet.com because they serve a broader consumer audience out there. So, I think, I think the, can I call it the leveling of the playing field? I think there's going to be some of that. I also think we're going to start to see, time and place shifting. And what I mean by that is, you know, if, if I can now start to look at this in different ways, I can start to say, hey, I used to outsource something because at the end of the day, the cost was so much cheaper. But now when I actually look at the cost of shipping, but also the avail- availability of producing this product in proximity to an audience that's going to consume it, Boy, now I can start to think about, and could 5G and these other technologies enable? Perhaps 5G connected to additive manufacturing allows me to say, well, gosh, I, I could put a small manufacturing facility closest to our hotbeds of customers. And, you know, we've talked about that on, on your show before. I, I think you're, you're everything you and I are describing is starting to happen. It's not like we're just, you know, we're talking about some bold future state here. But I think, um, I believe we're starting to call the tipping point in the enabling infrastructure that these things are going to start to accelerate, if, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, Tony, it does. And I, I loved, uh, you know, the, the broad picture you're painting here. And also you talk about something like uh, AI as a service, right? Not, th- not very long ago, that would have sounded like science fiction or, you know, somebody's trying to sell something that isn't really there. But um, last month, I was out at Google cloud. We, I was interviewing Thomas Kurian, the CEO of the year. And one of the things he described was he said, he said, Hey, 18 months ago, he said, we could have gone into, you know, one of the world's largest retail companies and we could have explained to them the technology solution lying in front of them. And he said, part of that would have been to say, what you have to do is go out and hire somewhere between 200 and 400 data scientists And then you have to have them work through this stuff and he said we could have articulated the solution but given them no help in achieving it he said today he said with some of these things that are developing with ai tools and as a service model that you've described here just like with computing power with storage that capability in medicine to uh crunch through a massively different higher level number of possibilities to find things that are going on That's one of the reasons, Tony, that I just feel that sometimes our expectations about what the next two, three, five, seven years could be like, are uh, we're underplaying them because too often we think it's just about, let's take what we did before and digitalize it a little bit, make it a little more efficient. I think there's going to be, as you've described here, this explosion of things never been done before, never thought possible before, and done on a global scale by big companies, medium-sized companies, and small companies.
1: You should, it, look, as it, Bob, as one of your your other digital art stars, Sean Amirati says, you know, as digital transformation hits a point, it'll start to be less about that and more about business model transformation, right? And you and I have touched on this before. I think that's what you're describing, and and I I think, you know, you have to have that combination of you know enabling infrastructure, but also familiarity with the tools and applications. It, you know, even as as um, AI as a service and all the other things that we're talking about, it doesn't mean that you don't need to have people that understand how to harness the power of this technology. But a- as those things become in relative orbit, it is remarkable to me. And, and we, we are starting to think a lot about and talking to our constituencies, our users and our, and our customers too, about what manufacturing is today you know, I think there is this, as we've touched on before, there's this kind of fascinating misperception of manufacturing in the United States. And some of that's a a legacy of of a a bit of a political football at times. Some of it's a legacy of, you know, the average American is, you know, if you're not involved in the industry like that, it seems kind of foreign to you. And you think it happens outside your shores. You don't walk around seeing, you know, auto factories and all those kinds of things on a regular basis. But what's fascinating about it is not only is it a huge industry, $2.4 trillion, and growing and healthy and vibrant. But if you go down the list of the world's most valuable companies, they're actually manufacturers. Apple's a manufacturer. Google's actually a manufacturer. They manufacture something. Amazon is a manufacturer. Microsoft is a manufacturer. Now we're redefining what manufacturing means, but in a different era, we would have just said, no, 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 they're software companies. But if you actually look at the business that they're in, I think these, these enabling technologies are allowing us to rethink, right? What is a manufacturing company? You're starting to lean into something too, that I'm fascinated with, Bob, which is, I think it's going to open up capabilities for, smaller and medium-sized companies, let alone the elephants are going to start to dance, which we're already starting to see evidence of that. And and our our mutual colleague Sean Amorati says, you know, for them to use their unfair competitive advantages now that they can unleash some of this stuff. But I think as, you know, getting a little closer to home here, I think in terms of manufacturing, two things are going to happen concurrent with this. One is we're going to reimagine what manufacturing is. You know, we have new rock stars. Elon Musk is a rock star. In a different era, he was just bending steel. Today's era, he's bending steel, but he's also creating a, a tech product that's very interesting. I think it's very much reflective of what modern manufacturing is today. It's very hard to separate the technology from the bending of the steel, if I can use that phraseology. I think those things are inextricably intertwined today. And maybe in my... my. Uh, my, uh, you, know, uh, you know, bluster here. I'm trying to define how those things fit together, but I really believe that this is going to be a real impetus and, and accelerant to the manufacturing industry as, as we know it. But isn't it ironic that it's coming from a step change in technology that's enabling that?
0: Um, Tony, as you were describing that and using the term about bending steel, I remembered and Wow. Uh, sort of dating myself, but I'm old enough now. I don't mind dating myself, I, but this was 30 or wow. 40 years ago. The first time I ever heard somebody from General Motors talk about, I think one of their factories was called uh, Rev river Rouge. And, and they described it as like mile and a half long plant, raw materials come in here and a finished GM car drives out the other end. And extraordinary achievement at their time you know what was possible there but um, just the scale of that now right with some these new capabilities new insights new developments in manufacturing in design in the infusion of every sort of um, formerly enterprise technology now manufacturing technology and industrial technology just remaking these things and in some ways 30 or 40 years that wasn't that long ago i mean we're not talking no. about 400 years this is in a matter of decades we've seen these industries totally flip upside down what was possible what made sense what was cutting edge and that to me is one of the most exciting things about this i think this sense of what's possible every few years I, we used to think about well that's this industry will tap out around here I, there's no limits anymore what these companies are going to be able to do. And that's got to be so exciting for the industrial markets that you serve.
1: I, I think so too, Bob. And I think, you know, you know, the old cliche of we're only limited by our imagination. As you were talking, I was remembering the famous quote from IBM at the dawning of the PC where some research analysts came back and said, boy, we think this could be, you know, nice little product. Maybe it could sell a quarter million units over the course of its life cycle. <laughs> and uh, I, I don't know how many PCs are sold every hour, you know, but, it, but it's probably close to a quarter of a million. But, but I think we are limited by our imagination at times If understanding how to reimagine some of these businesses. You know, it's, it's interesting as you were giving the example of, a, of an auto factory. Um, we uh, did a did a piece and a profile on a Toyota uh, plant, and I apologize for not remembering where in the United States this is. It's somewhere I think in the Midwest. They did a 1.5 billion dollar upgrade to all the systems there, all the automation, and all the different systems in the uh, in the uh, in the plant. Here's the kicker: created 500 more jobs. which is really kind of fascinating where you're thinking, wait a minute, shouldn't we be, you know, so I think in, also in the spirit of challenging our imaginations, I I think we think of these things as zero sum games and we get caught up in the, oh my gosh, you know, perhaps jobs are going away or I'm going to get automated out. And, you know, we talk about that in context of trying to picture a future state of artificial intelligence. Somebody told me yesterday in a meeting that there's an app that you can go on is will my job, be automated, right, in the future? I, I don't want to take it because I know the answer is yes, clearly, in my case. But all kidding aside, I think I think we're limiting our imagination around this stuff. And I think, you know, you and I have talked about this before. It's not blue-collar, it's not white-collar. These are new-collar jobs yeah. that are some fascinating fusion of the maker movement and making things with advanced technology. And I, I think that is what industrial and manufacturing markets are today. And you can hear my enthusiasm about it, because it's the market we live and work in. But you can also just feel this energy building of people who it's turning on a creative spark, right? That I think, you know, it's fun to be in a business where you can kind of think there's potential to reimagine components of it or step into markets you've only dreamed of stepping into or try things without, without having to bet the farm yeah, financially that, man, if this doesn't work, we're cratering the business.
0: Yeah, Tony, as we, we wanna uh, sort of segue over into some of your thoughts about the marketing side of what's going on here with manufacturing. But as we do that, um, as you talk about, you know, blue collar, white collar, new collar, I still have a number of Nehru jackets uh, in my wardrobe and you're one of the best dressed people I know. Does that sort of catch in with the new collar thing or no collar?
1: The- the only guideline is after Labor Day, not the white Nehru jacket anymore, okay? You have to go with the darker colors, but other than that, and can I just say personally for all of your listeners who may not know you as well as I do, I think you wear the Nehru jacket perhaps better than anyone that I know. Thank you. Certainly anybody outside of India.
0: Yeah, I, I don't see a lot of them uh, around these days. Maybe well, not everybody can wear stuff. it, as, as you know. On, okay, cool. Yeah. Cool. I mean, yeah. I like that. Yeah, you know, uh, uh, a marketing segue. Everyone, thank you for that very sincere uh, uh, counsel you just gave me there. I'm here to help. All this, uh, you know, roiling of what's uh, possible—the fusion, in some ways, of traditional industrial technology and information technology. There's a lot of things bubbling around here that still needs to get settled out, and perhaps some companies playing in those spaces are either overplaying their hands about. What they can offer, or misplaying their hands, uh, or just maybe not thinking through pretty clearly what's happening. They're trying to take a model or a philosophy, a type of philosophy that existed in the past, but now with things changing so fast, we, we just can't rely on sort of some cliches as perhaps has happened up until yeah.
1: now. Yeah, it's interesting. And in, in, in our private communications, you can tell I'm throwing a little spaghetti up on the wall here, trying to be a little intentionally provocative because I can feel something's changing. I don't know how to describe it yet. And, and I, I know how to polarize it, but I'm not really sure that I can explain it other than to say, I think the gap between the brand promise that companies are attempting to make and the user experience has gotten too big. And so I think it's creating a dissonance and that doesn't mean companies are stupid or they're bad marketers or any of those types of things. I think something's changing. And, and I'm, I'm a believer in the idea that in the law of physics called threading, right? So in other words, if, if one thing is true, there's likely a series of things that are threaded or connected to that, that are going to also be true. And so I look at the level of change you and I are describing. You and I are describing things that 20 years ago, if someone was listening to this conversation, they'd think we were describing, uh, you know, an episode of some science fiction, you know, television program or something. Today, these things are real, and they're starting to shift the way we think about these things. Um, I don't think, therefore, everything changes. The laws of physics don't change, but I, I can't help but think that the way we introduce the way we create awareness the way we created affinity around our brands is going to have to change a little bit not radically not you know i'm not saying that suddenly everything's up for grabs and the old ways need to be thrown out but i I'm, i'm 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 intrigued my my uh my market watching you know radar system is is going off in a good way of it feels to me that the narratives with which we've created value with prospects and customers aren't working as well today as they did yesterday and i don't know what that means yet but i i'm not alone in this thinking as you well know marketing has been disrupted by technology and as a result we we you know as the pendulum swings we've turned around and we've been monkeying with the technology i would argue and not actually at the front end of marketing, which is, who are we? Why do we exist? Who are you? Why should I have a conversation with you? Which is the elements of branding and relationship building. So I I hate to be so inarticulate about it, but, but I really think, Bob, there's something in here, and I think it's important for our industry to be having this kind of conversation. And look, you know, deep thinkers, Christopher Lockhead and other folks who really understand this stuff at a very, very advanced level should be the ones wading into this discussion and leading it. But it, 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 um, I notice it in my industry because I think they, they are, by and large, many industrial or manufacturing companies, other than some of the consumer facing ones, um, are, are late adopters of, of marketing in the traditional sense. And so they're not always adept. You know, I'll give you an example and not to pick on them. You look at the struggles that Boeing's going through. Now, Boeing obviously has made or appears to have made some decisions that were really, really bad decisions. So I don't want to make light of that. But suddenly now, Boeing is struggling to figure out who are we in today's world and how do we connect with customers? Because suddenly, some very large customers are backing up and saying, whoa, 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 Maybe you weren't who we thought you were. Right, and so maybe maybe not the most perfect example, but I, I I do think there's something in here that's helpful for us to to understand better.
0: Yeah, Tony, and I think you're being quite articulate about it. You look at another iconic company, GE, so a phenomenal company, but over the last handful of years, they too have gone through some painful internal reevaluations. Where are we? What's what works? What doesn't? What do we mean to the outside world? And as you were describing some of those upheavals, Tony, I thought about it. Right, it's Uh, In your case, you know, manufacturing technology's been completely turned upside down the last handful of years. Information tech, the tech industry is disrupting the tech industry, the MarTech, the things that have happened there. And then ultimately, us as individuals, as consumers, our expectations about what we're going to buy, where we're going to buy from, how we want things done on our terms, that's changed. So that rethinking that you're describing, I think, has to take place. It's not confined to the markets that Thomas serves, but I think it perhaps is particularly true there because they're in some cases older, there's been a more traditional way of doing things. But I think, you know, keep keep hammering away on that, Tony, because this is, uh, there's there's no victory, there's no upside to some company maybe hunkering down and thinking, geez, if I just sort of sit tight, maybe this yeah. wave of change will wash over and I can go back a <laughs> yeah.
1: you know, little bit business hope, as usual. I hope this all ends. Um one of, the, one of the things that it, it is, you know, rather than just sit here and throw rocks from the, from the sidelines, one idea is perhaps I could give an example of a company I think is doing a brilliant job of, of marketing and positioning in the new era, and I think that's Microsoft. So if you go back several years, and not to pick on Steve Ballmer, but when Steve Ballmer was the CEO of Microsoft, and even in his uh, exit address to the company, it was about market share. It was about why they were better than the competition. It was about what they accomplished that the competition didn't uh, over the course of, of, uh, of the year, over the course of his history as the CEO of the company. And I think those things were of a different era that that was important that we felt if we demonstrated that we were number one, that we were better, that that was the way that the customer made the decisions. And, and there's probably some truth to that. And, and we can all uh, point at that. Look at Satya today, right? Amazon says they're, they're going to they're gonna see if they can get to neutral on carbon footprint. Satya says, hey, we're going to actually get to sub-carbon sub, uh, footprint, and here's how right? He's talking about customer behavior. He's talking about um, customer needs. He's talking about partnering. He's not stepping up and bashing the competition. I'm sure he, you know, is just as aggressive as the next person. But the tone of voice out of Microsoft is about technology advancement. It's about customers. It's about innovation. It's not about market share and bashing competitors and, and doing all that kind of stuff. And That's an easy example to give from the, that was then, this is now. But I think it's a really illustrative example of, uh, you know, calling Microsoft, you know, an old dog, new tricks, probably what is Microsoft now, 45 year old company or or, uh, something like that. But I think it's a good example of what I'm trying to explain here. And I think to your point, some of the manufacturing companies, you know, of speeds, feeds, uptime, Faster than the next person, those types of things, I think are still relevant in terms of features and benefits. But I think that that broader way or that more thoughtful way of establishing both thought leadership, stability, uh, relationships, the personality of, of the company. I, I give you just one other little data point in here that we yeah. find fascinating. So every two seconds, an engineer or procurement professional. What's called an MRO, maintenance, repair, and operations. Picture somebody running the factory floor at a Tesla factory. Um, Every two seconds, one of those people is evaluating a product, sourcing a product, or evaluating a supplier on thomasnet.com. And it gives us this incredible data-driven window into, um, you know, how that process works and the types of things that they're looking at. One of the things that we find fascinating is we have a a request for uh, information system that resides on thomasnet.com. Relatively straightforward, I can evaluate and set criteria. And then I can send a direct solicitation to a potential supplier uh, or several at the same time based on my uh, specific criteria. I'm an engineer and I'm looking for a custom manufactured part at this level of volume with these materials. And we, you know, help them kind of matchmaking the system. When that ultimately results in a sale, so we've been able to, through research, track this back. The last thing inevitably, upwards of 80% of the time, that the buyer looks at before they hit send on that, we call it RFQ, they look at the About Us section on the website of the supplier. They look at the pictures of the people, they look at the factory, they look at, you know, and and I always am fascinated by that as a data point. And and I, I think there's a remarkable sense if we still buy from people. Yeah, these are powerful companies. But I think we want to have a sense of who who is this? What's the personality here? So, again, you know, just not fully formed yet. But I think this idea of we may be signaling that it's time to think through the narrative in a bit of a different way. Maybe it's time of an era of, um, you know, less less um, less hubris. You know, or 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 perhaps maybe it's not hubris. Maybe we need to. Check whether we're being tone deaf in terms of the needs of the customer. What what really interests the customer or prospect? Maybe that's closer to what I'm trying to describe.
0: Tony, absolutely. You know, some uh, wonderful thoughts in there. But I think eventually, right, this notion of getting out of our little cocoons that we're we're comfortable at headquarters, wherever it might be, and to actually go out and say well, this is what I think is going on in the world, but what what do people who are buying and selling really think? And so yep. never before has it been more important that anybody, any job title, any sort of company or industry get out and see what's happening there because that tells us one thing. And the other side of it is, I don't mean to call it magic in a glib way, but these extraordinary new capabilities that you and I have chatted about for the last half hour of what's possible. So we can't just rely on some... Uh, customer oriented perspectives because often they'll tell us how to make things they already have better but some blend of what they need where they're going what they're hearing what they're seeing so just a more open mind to what what's going on in the world combined with that uh, imagination that as you said is sometimes just the limit of everything ceo on down has to be the one driving those cultural perspectives right
1: yeah, it's interesting. I was talking to um, a guy named Michael Ayrton, who's the CEO of a, of a very fast-growing custom manufacturing company, primarily in the plastics area. It's a company called Rodon, and really just fascinating company on many levels. 60-year-old mm-hmm. family company, and, and uh, I was talking to him recently about when he took over the company, and timing is everything, he took over as president and CEO in 2008. And so not exactly you know, flying into the teeth of a recession and, and you know, all that kind of stuff. And we were having a similar conversation to the one you and I are having. It was really about the power of relationships in business and whether those are relationships with customers or prospects. And he brought up something I thought was absolutely fascinating that I hadn't thought of, is he said, you know, when I took over, I'd been involved with the company for a while, and then I got promoted to, to president and CEO, and he said, what I did when the, when the um, you know, financial crisis really started to hit is he said, I went back to the relationships I had with our bankers. And, you know, it was interesting because I thought, you know, you don't think of those as a part of your daily kind of a thing. And he said, I realized, you know, I had worked hard to establish trust-built relationships. We were very transparent with them. They knew everything there was to know about our business. So when that hit, we were the last company that they were going to be overly, you know, restrictive about. And he said, I wanted to make sure. And he said, thankfully, we didn't need it. But if we needed access to capital, it was there. And it, it, it hit me, I think you and I are saying the same thing in, in good markets or bad markets or things in between. I think having a sense of trust in a relationship and, and I guess, you know, how do we do that today? And how do we establish that with with the with the idea of our brand and the way we market our company? I, I think, I think some of the the ways we did it we we've done it in the past still apply. I think there might be some subtleties in terms of the lyrics we might use today, that that perhaps are changing.
0: Well, Tony, on that, perhaps that'll be a uh, subject for uh, next month's episode of UpHoff on Industry. What do you think?
1: I look forward to it, Bob.
0: Tony, great stuff as always. Thank you so much. Tell, tell uh, our, our fans here about where they can see the Thomas podcast.
1: Hey, appreciate it. So thomasnet.com is our core platform, and you can have access to our daily email newsletter, Thomas Industry Update. You can also have access to our Thomas Industrial uh, Update podcast. Uh, and it also gives you an access to all the different types of information and services that we provide. And as always, Bob, really appreciate you having us on. I always enjoy our conversations.
0: Tony, thanks. Same here. Uh, absolutely. And my thanks to all of you for listening or watching. Great to uh, have you with us here at Cloud Wars Live, and we look forward to seeing you next time.